Hello, once again, and welcome to uh, episode number six of Arts and Crass, the highbrow, lowbrow film podcast. I am Cullen. I'm Todd. I considered doing this whole thing silently today, but then I couldn't figure out how it would work in the back and forth. (laughs) Well, you know, in Hong Kong, there are lots of big boats. So this is the show where um, I and Todd, Todd and I, me and he, show each other films from our respective wheelhouses that we haven't seen. I show Todd a gore, horror, exploitation, um, culty sort of film that he hasn't seen, and he shows me an artsy, fartsy, pretentious <laughs> film, or uh, in this case, selection of films that I have not seen, and then we talk about them for y'all. I thought you were going to eliminate the pretension out of the description of, upon <laughs> thinking about this week. And yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, pretension has many faces, my friend. I, I forgot to say, too, man, um, everyone's been bullying me. I've been been bullying (laughs) bullying me. (laughs) It's because you're such an easy target, man. You just have such a punchable, you have such a yankable ponytail. I know, man. (laughs) I I don't really have a ponytail, please. (laughs) Um, So this week, as we've been making veiled references to, uh, Todd assigned me a smorgasbord of um of short films by America's favorite son <laughs> Stan Brackage at least the favorite son of some people in America yes mm-hmm. um and uh Colin gave me um Ebola syndrome by Herman Yao um and I think yeah that that pretty much covers it yep from uh, 1996 from 1996 exactly all right, and uh, as always, uh, we have a coin to flip to decide who goes first. Introduce a little anarchy. Upset the established order, and everything becomes chaos. Ready? It's it's tails. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> All right, so that means that we're starting with uh, 1996s. Ebola syndrome. Um, first of all, awfully um, interesting. Um, the current, obviously, situation with um, Ebola worldwide, and then a 1996 film focused on this um, disease. While it seemed to still be a little bit in a stage of mythos, which was pretty interesting. But let's give you the narrative. Um, little girl is sent out to go play by herself. Specifically said, go play by yourself on the street. Leaves um, the front of a um, Hong Kong tenant house or, or apartment and uh, goes and just stands out front. And it's a very solemn opening scene while her mother goes on to fuck the employee of her husband, um, who is the boss. Um, the guy who is having sex with the wife of his boss while the little girl is standing out front, um, it seems as if the attraction between them is pure physicality. He doesn't really have anything to offer women. He's just a feast guy. Um, a desire, desire, I want, I need physicality, feast. There's no real thought process deeper than that for him. Um, and so the sex that they have is very kind of physical, male-dominant, um, 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 violent to some degree, some aspects of violence. But anyway, the um, the boss, the husband of the woman having sex with the main character. Um, main character's name is... 
Kai. Kai, that's right. So Kai's having sex with the wife of the boss. The boss walks in, sees the little girl out front. She tells him that mom's upstairs with Uncle Kai. He goes up and proceeds to obviously, well, verbally abuse the woman and blame her, but physically kick Kai's ass, basically. Um, him and his one dude who's with him. Um, it seems as if they're probably drug bosses of some sort or illegal bosses of some sort. Um, so, but Kai in the long run gets the better of them. Um, so as they're kicking his ass, um, he, I don't even remember what turns the fight around, but Kai ends up killing both of these men as well as the woman. Um, and he kills him in pretty brutal fashion. Um, I remember the one head was smashed in between doors, or was mm-hmm. that, I believe? But the, there's two different head-smashing scenes in this. Yeah, yeah. And, the, the, I'm not sure. The Between the Doors might have been later. I'm yeah, not. and it's it's very gratuitous. Like, he really smashes the hell out of this head, which I actually really liked because I've always wondered in films when you smash a head, like, it goes too quickly, you know? But he really pounds the heck out of it. So anyway, so he kills these three people in Hong Kong and then has to go on the run. So... If I remember correctly, the next time we see him is quite a few years later, I think about 10 years later, in South Africa. Um, he has run off to South Africa, where he is a very much a worker lowlife at a Chinese restaurant. So the years have not treated him well, as he's continued, seemingly continued to live the same exact life, have no real change, no real development, other than life beating him up and him being stuck in South Africa, where he has no real social status. Um, so he just works, once again, he has a boss who he does everything for, and he's just the grunt guy who works in this Chinese restaurant, and the boss's wife is a complete bitch to him, um, basically downs him at every chance that she can. This part of the story actually takes up quite a bit of the film. This takes up pretty much the first half of the film um and i'll talk about that a little more later but um so the relationship between him this chinese restaurant the boss the boss's wife um and then they end up because they sell pig and lots of really gross things go on in this kitchen by the way and kai has no sense of sanitation let's say um he, he very intentionally and antagonistically does pretty gross things to the food from time to time um but at one point, a young woman and her fiancé come in um, that are in their early 20s, would be my guess. Um, young, pretty couple, um, very conservative-looking, nice, going on to a good life. Um, and the young woman, while she's in the restaurant, starts getting convulsions, starts getting sick. They're sitting there with friends. They've just come into South Africa. They're visiting from Hong Kong, or they've been traveling the world or something like that. And um, they come into South Africa. They go to the Chinese restaurant, and she starts getting these convulsions, not from the food. Food, but something is bothering her. She says she smells blood. She smells blood, and she's getting very ill from this. And it happens every time Kai comes near the table or every time Kai is around them. Um, but she doesn't recognize him physically. She even walks past him at one point and gets very sick as she walks past him. So, Because the white man is keeping the Asian man down in South Africa at the market where they're buying pigs, and they feel like they're being overcharged for the pigs. So the white man bullying the Asian man. The Asian man goes to kind of bully the tribal African men into selling them pigs cheaper. So they go out into the bush and make a deal with this extremely archaic um, African tribe. Um, They are, there are lots of people suffering sick and dying laying around while they're carrying on in some sort of tribal ceremony to try to heal them. Um, There's medicine men spitting blood. There's medicine men spitting other fluids, Um, basically uh, tribal rituals to try to heal all of the suffering and dying people that are in the tribe. Um, The boss and Kai, um, the boss, the owner of the um, Chinese restaurant, Kai, don't seem to be phased by this. Well, they they notice it, but they still want to buy their pigs for cheap. So they go to the chief. 
they still get their pigs for cheap, and they head on back. So as they're heading back from the bush, way deep um, in the bush, um, as they're heading back from the bush, um, back to uh, the city where their Chinese restaurant is, um, at one point, um, I know they have a... They, they have a little minor, oh yeah, they have a wreck. They run into a, a tree. And so Kai has a, has a moment to go and wander off um, while the boss is trying to fix the truck. While Kai is wandering off, and this is pretty typical fashion for him, he sees a tribal woman wandering by herself. And the first thing that goes through his mind is, ah, sex. So this woman is obviously very ill, um, that she is obviously coming down with the same disease that the people were dying from in the um, in the um, the tribal community, but he sees her and he decides to have sex with her anyway. Um, now, this sex scene, the opening sex scene as well, was pretty potent. But we'll get around to all that. Um, all of the sex scenes are very, very heavy and very. Um, they go on for a long time. They're very, yeah. Th- there's a lot, but um, so he rapes this woman, this tribal woman in the bush, and she dies while he's raping her. And so, when she starts dying, she clenches his unit um her body clenches his unit i guess that's probably biologically true um i don't know but and he's basically saying let go of my dick let go of my dick um as she's dying on him and he's been raping her um sounds fun doesn't it so far guys and um as she's dying she is spewing blood out of her mouth into his face essentially absolutely absolutely and at this point you kind of get a sense that he kind of well he realizes this is disgusting and he may be even piecing together the fact that this woman's sick and this is a really bad idea that i raped her but he's only so phased by it like he's still gonna do it you know um but yes so the blood gets spit in his face the fluids get spit in his face um he goes back up to the truck the boss has it fixed and they drive on back and he acts as if nothing happened um they go back he starts working in the restaurant again um he gets pretty ill for a while actually and the boss and his wife take care of him he gets a really bad um gets a really bad um temperature um is laying on their couch um hoarded up in their place and they consider literally just killing him or throwing him out in the bush and basically saying hey we don't want this dude around the wife is a big proponent actually of just going ahead and getting rid of him instead of them taking care of him because they're starting to catch on from the doctor that this might be a pretty heavy disease and might be pretty contagious and they don't want to touch him they don't want any of this kind of stuff um so at one point the wife when she's on her own and the husband's not there, and this is, once again, their grunt employee who kind of does everything for them, kind of runs the restaurant on the dirty side of it for them. Um, and she decides that she's going to drag him out herself and, and get rid of him, and that she doesn't want him in her apartment anymore. Um, at this point, he seems to come back to is well enough to challenge her after being very, very ill and weak, and she's trying to drag him out. And he, um, and I believe a confrontation starts at that point. And so then the husband comes home. Um, he catches on that they're trying to kill him, and he kills both of them. Um, but there's a third person there, too. Yeah, it's like the cousin or somebody. Yeah, that's right. The cousin also comes in, in later. Yeah. So he kills the husband and the wife that he works for, um, who have also been bullying him. He, this is something that he continues to say throughout the films, that his bosses are bullying him or the yeah. world is bullying him. Um, and I think that's pretty potent. Um so he kills them, you know, mumbling to himself some stuff about, you know, you won't bully me anymore and screw y'all and all this kind of stuff. He takes over the restaurant for a couple of weeks by himself, cooking food with the other employees, telling people that the boss and his wife had simply gone on a trip to Taiwan. So he basically, when he killed them, filleted them, took all the meat off of their bodies, 
ground it into hamburger meat and made what he called African buns that were basically the equivalent of American hamburgers. And he sold them to guests. This was the meat of the people he killed, who also, it would appear, had become infected in some way or another with the same disease that um, that um, Kai has. And so this is where the Ebola thing starts coming in. About halfway through the film, it's really starting to come in heavy. Supposedly, according to a doctor, one in 10 million can carry the disease without actually um, dying from it, that the um, symptoms all subside and, um, and they go on as a carrier and can spread it as wide as possible. Um, so when he goes back to Hong Kong, he is still a carrier of this disease, even though he feels just fine. And so he's in South Africa and he's once again, 10 years later, killed three people and has to run again, find some way. I think he steals the passport of the boss and finds some way to doctor it and make it artificial and goes back to Hong Kong. But he hooks up with his old woman in Hong Kong. Um, he ends up bargaining with her current junkie husband to have her back. Um, at some point or the other, everything starts coming together. So all these convoluted aspects of the narrative start coming together. The girl who had seen him at the restaurant in South Africa is now back in Hong Kong and goes to the cops. I believe she'd gone to the cops in South Africa as well, actually. There's now a cop in Hong Kong that is aware, and all of this happens really fast in the second half of the film, so forgive me if there's some gaps. The first half of the film goes very slow um, during this. But um, So then there's a cop in Hong Kong who's specifically after him. They start catching on that this is a real syndrome, that it's Ebola. They start catching on that all these people um, are starting, uh, or that it's becoming an epidemic, basically. And they want to find patient zero, basically, which is Kai. Um, so he's seeking out Kai. Um, at the same time, the young woman who had seen him at the restaurant in South Africa, you start realizing it's the same little girl who had been sent out front in the very first scene of the film. Um, to play with herself. To play with herself. While, um, while her mother and I guess her father, but her mother's man, um, were all killed by Kai. Um, Kai, at one point, actually, they interact before he leaves. So she had seen him as a child, like right after the, the murder. She'd watched the murders, actually, as a child and had been haunted by them. So this is the young woman who ended up going to the restaurant in South Africa and then back to Hong Kong and is trying to get somebody to pay attention. But the only evidence she has is, I feel nauseous when this guy's around or I smell blood when this guy's around. So they can only pay so much attention to her. Um, everything starts piecing together here at the end and it starts moving pretty quickly through the Hong Kong scenes. Um, at this point, narratively, I start losing it other than I'm trying to remember other than the cop chasing her, the girl being involved, everybody trying to find Kai, the girls trying to find Kai, the cops trying to find Kai. They all spot her. They see it or they spot him. They see him. Um, he's continuing to spread the disease around at one point or the other. I guess he killed, did he kill his woman as well? I guess. No, no, she, she lives. So, so, so she yeah. lives, but he moves on. Um, and then it goes into kind of a, a montage of you seeing the spread of the Ebola and the effects of everything he's done. They start a man chase um, to some degree to try to catch Kai because they've spotted him. So the cop who is in his full protective gear against the disease is chasing Kai. Um, and one thing leads to another. 
that I basically remember that Kai is doused in fluid, um, lit on fire, and that's how he finally dies. Um, that he's basically wallowing through the streets uh, on fire and dies while we see the disease continue to spread through this very interesting montage of small nuances that they show us yeah. of one person touching another person, one person kissing another person. And I don't remember exactly what they were, but it was a montage of different things that happened from me. I think to there's human. a dog licking an ice cream cone. There is. There's at a one gr- point. Great scene with a little girl and a dog. Yeah. It's her cute little dog that had eaten a little piece of flesh that Kai had left behind. Uh-huh. And then gone and she shared her ice cream cone with her dog. And then she gets Ebola. And so, and, and it ends with that eerie notion of this is going to continue. That, that, that he had set this disease out to the world and now it's going to spread. Now, also let's put this into the context. I'm, I'm done with the narrative at this point. But let's put it into the context that it would appear that Ebola then even more so than now, especially because of all the press coverage, but kind of like when we all first started hearing about Ebola, however long ago, um, that there's a real mysticism to it. And so this movie really played into that, that it was the, the, you know, strangest, most dangerous, horrific, almost the way people felt about AIDS in the eighties, um, that, that it could really destroy an entire society and kill everybody. And that there was no real, um, defense against it. Um, and then I'm going to let Colin fill in any gaps that I may have missed. I realize that was convoluted. Apologies. Hope we can edit that a little bit. But it's, it's true to the nature of the narrative. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to edit at all. I think okay. that was a great, um, as as good a synopsis uh, of a, like, yeah, when you lay it all out like that, surprisingly convoluted and complicated plot a for lot like on. an 86-minute movie. So first of all, I want to apologize for, I think this is the fifth film that I've given you that involves cannibalism. <laughs> I keep think I don't even think about it. I just end up giving him films that have cannibalism in it. I it's 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 not my fault. <laughs> um but they're all different different you know it's all different takes on cannibalism. Different takes on it. Yeah, different variants. And yes it is Colin's fault. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is my fault. I watch a lot of movies about cannibalism. No, I mean it's really it's a really potent interesting theme in 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 horror. This uh, <laughs> This film has some very personal elements for both Todd and myself. Uh, Todd has worked in kitchens for a long, long time, and I'm sure has seen some shit, um, literally and figuratively. I do have to say, the most grotesque things he did in the kitchen, I still kind of shrugged my shoulders at and was like, yep. <laughs> it happens. It right? happens. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, I uh, used to live in Southern Africa, so we, have, we both have... Uh, very personal uh, relationships to this film from a different sort of angle. This film is um, one of the infamous Category 3 Hong Kong films. Um, basically, in 1988, the Hong Kong uh, film industry imposed a rating system. I don't think they had ha- had, had a rating system at all up until then. Um, and... Essentially, there was Category 1, 2, and 3. Most films fell into Category 2, I believe. Category 1 was like kids' movies, and Category 3 was together what we in the United States would think of as hard R all the way through NC-17, all the way up through hardcore porn. All... All three of those were lumped together in so category So the way we three. used to think of rated X. So basically R through X yeah. would all be in category three. Right, right, exactly. And uh, there was a lot of porn that was being produced in the early 90s. You know, the late 80s to the early 
mid eighties to mid nineties was basically the boom in in Hong Kong cinema. It was the it was the third largest film industry um, hmm. for a long time after Bollywood and Hollywood. Around the time that this film came out was really when the when the decline started. And it had to do with a lot of different things that I'll get into in a minute. In amongst this sea of sort of porn, hardcore and softcore, there were these horror, exploitation, gore movies. Um, and this is one of the famous ones. There weren't really that many produced, but they've 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 gotten a very in the West have gotten this very uh, cult uh, following. This is. Uh, a, it's not a sequel, but it's the same um, creative team and the same star uh, of a 1993 film called The Untold Story, um, better known in some markets as Bun Man, uh, which was also had to do with uh, a restaurant and uh, horrible things happening in a restaurant. And actually, Anthony Wong, who plays Kai in this film, was the star of that film and won the Hong Kong Film Award for Best Actor for Bun Man. Oh, wow. The Hong Kong Film Awards are the Hong Kong Oscars, basically. They're the most prestigious film awards, but they, like the like the Europeans, they have a much more friendly attitude towards what we'll just call a large umbrella term genre cinema there. Um, action movies, crime thrillers, and that sort of stuff routinely wins top honors. Now, was Bun Man still within the context of exploitation? Yes. Like this film? It is very much like this film. Because a yeah. film like this never, even if the performance was mind-blowing, yeah. would never even get looked at for Wouldn't even get in, any attention, yeah. In the States or in Europe, actually. Right, right. Well, yeah, so that that sort of shows you a little bit of the cultural context, um, how a film like this is more acceptable. It plays more in a mainstream, a mainstream way. It's still, I wouldn't call this mainstream, I don't think, compared to a lot of the other Hong Kong films I've seen. Um, it's definitely extreme, but maybe it doesn't play as extreme in, with those audiences as it does here. But that's speculation. I don't know. I haven't been to Hong Kong. Um, all this is extremely interesting to me. Um, I'm going to start with the porn aspect. Some of the sex scenes are definitely leaning towards porn. Yeah. Um, they, are, they go on for a long time. They're usually threaded with some sense of violence and antagonism, right. even when... Non-consent. Right, exactly. And even when it is consensual, there's mm-hmm. still that tone to it. Yeah. Um, very male-dominated. It was shot with a certain level of cinematic awareness. I mean, it was good cinematography, a lot of handheld work, um, a kind of dingy tone to it. Um, the location shooting was great. It seemed very little production design outside of um, doctoring up location shooting, but great location shooting. Um, some really, really potent filmmaking, actually. And then you'd get to these um, porn-esque sex scenes or um, a couple of the confrontation scenes that seemed a little overacted. Um, and, and actually not by Anthony Wong, but by some of the other actors. Um, and um, and then you kind of wonder, like, quite where is this placed? You know, like, in, in America, like, this is too well made to be a exploitation film. <laughs> right. But it's way too porny, gross, gratuitous to be taken with any credibility. And so w- within my context, it was very hard for me to place it. 
And um, and so all of that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, the fact that someone like Anthony Wong could go on to win an award is amazing to me in Hong well, Kong. Well, he actually cinema. won the Hong Kong Oscar like three years before he made this. Right, yeah. right. And see, that's even crazier yeah. to me because his character is a very potent character in this film. I mean, it's a, a very, very um, – Wow, you really, really are kind of disgusted by the man. Um, yeah, but he also is sort of weirdly charming. Or it, he has some kind of strange charisma that keeps you watching. You're invested in him for some reason. Yeah. There, and and I think I really think it comes down to um that he has the mentality at least as many people do in the world, um, <laughs> that the world has been beating him up, that uh-huh. he has been kept down. Um, he mumbles to himself, as I mentioned earlier, constantly, somebody's been bullying me. He's been bullying me. The boss is always bullying me. Everybody she, bullies Everybody me. bullies me. Everybody bullies me. Um, and then, you know, when he has the opportunity to fight back, he does. So there is some sense of a victimization to him. And then you spread that into um, a, a more macro version of our complete helplessness to Ebola. Or to any sort of contagious disease, yeah. or or the the fact that at in the long run we are at the mercy of the universe, and and so and if you fight it, what happens versus if you give into it? He was constantly feeling bullied and fighting back. But then some of the social themes are pretty intense, like when they were in South Africa, dealing with the fact that Asian men in South Africa had a very tough time mm-hmm. finding anyone to have sex with them because yeah. they were caught in between. The black women didn't want to be be with them because they seemed too white. The white women didn't want to see, be with them because they seemed like black men. There was a lot of substance going on there, but like mm-hmm. I said, once again, it was sheathed underneath some really stark exploitation scenes that it was really hard to bridge the two and and, and times of, I didn't know whether to take the film seriously or not. Right. Well, I would say no, (laughs) I would say don't take it seriously. Um, yeah, there's a lot, you know, a lot of those things you just brought up are really, um, you know, you hit on a couple of the really big themes this film was made in 1996. It takes place in South Africa and in Hong Kong. The end of apartheid and the election of the first black president in South Africa was 1994, and the handover of Hong Kong from British rule back to China was in 1997. In between, you have this film. Essentially, a person coming from a, a, a country that is on the brink of being you know having its colonial rule ended going to a country that is just recovering from the end of its colonial rule and a disease that is spread it's hard not to think of the ebola syndrome as it's sort of interesting because it's it's both representative of the fear of colonialism and also the fear of home rule Huh. You know, because like on the one hand and, and so Todd used the word tribe and tribal several times, which normally is something I would take issue with because you're not really, you know, it, it, it has it has connotations. But I, I, I forgive him for using it in this instance because that's how it's portrayed. <laughs> like it, it is hard not to think of those 1930s, like King Kong, you know, Island shit. And it's, I mean, it's all very Ooga Booga. Oh yeah. 100%. <laughs> like all of this, you got the, you have, you have the witch doctors and they're cutting heads off of chickens and they're spitting chicken blood on people. And, and there's not really room for cultural relativity or sympathy and cultural relativity. It really is rigidly portrayed as, as a more primal culture. Yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. There is no, 
yeah, the portrayal. Honestly, that whole big and it's a long sequence when they go out into the bush and they find this village or they go to this village where these ceremonies are taking place. That long sequence really makes me very uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. On one level, you can see very clearly the way these Chinese people who are still or or these Hong Kong people who are still laboring under colonial rule. You can see the way that they've internalized the the colonizers. um impressions and stereotypes and unflattering unflattering um, understandings and very very superficial understandings of what indigenous African people are like on the other hand the only reason that all of this is happening is because the white South Africans are treating the Chinese like shit right you know the there's a very clear sense that all of this all of this is perpetuated by the the sort of uncaring white people. And, yeah, Todd brought up a really, really interesting piece of dialogue where basically Kai is – yeah, he's lamenting that he can't find a woman to sleep with him. And he says, the black women see me as white and the white women see me as black, something yeah. like that. And, yeah, I mean, I can – I did not live in Southern Africa in the 90s. Uh, I lived there in the late 2000s. But I – I'm I'm sure that things have not really changed that much and that there is, you know, racial politics in Southern Africa really, really complicated and very different from what we have here in the States. Um, there are a lot of Chinese people. When you put it in terms of this colonialism, they are very clearly an underclass. Right. So not only do – in this film, not only does the white butcher, um, you know – extort or basically price gouge his pigs later on when the when the girl from hong kong the grown-up uh daughter of the couple that was murdered in the in the beginning of the film i don't remember that character's name or if lily she has a name oh lily, lily okay I think. so when she goes to the white police chief yeah. he is completely useless yes and he basically says i don't believe you or he said he says it nicer than that. And like you very, said, and this is a very legitimate young professional woman, like, right? Yes. Right. He essentially just brushes her off. You're not from here, and he he very much. You feel the weight of the. Even though this is post-apartheid, you still feel the weight of this, a sort of colonial, you know, institution of white power coming down on her and saying, "No, your concerns are not important." And then, of course, the outbreak comes back to Hong Kong. Um, it is it it follows the vector of colonialism in reverse the the colonists have left south africa and they're about to leave hong kong but while they're in the in the little time they have left they're going to wreak as much havoc as they can interesting uh and and so then this outbreak and of course the authorities both in south africa and in hong kong are pretty much incapable of containing it yeah um and, yeah, this sort of, you know, if you look at Kai as the spreader of this disease, the spreader of the, of, um, if you're, if you're thinking of it as a metaphor for colonialism, then even after he's gone, he's dead and gone, the effects of this are still carrying on. And in Hong Kong for a long time and in South Africa for a long time, the, the deleterious effects of the colonialism are still going to linger even after the colonists have gone. That's, that's a really, really intriguing allegory. Hong Kong under colonial rule, English colonial rule before being turned back to China, um, for the most part, seemed to be pretty independent, pretty democratic, 
mm-hmm. um, pretty flourishing. Yeah. Um, broad arts, obviously, always has been known for having a very large cinema, as Colin uh, mentioned, um, that I believe the popular opinion wasn't too happy about being returned back to China. Correct? Right. Yeah, and that was a big part of the reason that a lot of the important, a lot of the big names in the Hong Kong film industry Flat. in the 90s went to Hollywood. And I'm no expert in this history, but I think there were two attitudes. One was, I think the more prevailing one was that a lot of these filmmakers were afraid that under Chinese, under Chinese rule, that is the People's Republic of China, that they were going to be censored. And how much has that become truth? Not really that much. Okay. Uh, you know, to the extent, a lot of those fears were kind of overblown to the extent that a lot of them have gone back. John Woo, you mm-hmm. know, is now making films in, in China again. Because um, in large, China kind of allowed Hong Kong to continue to operate as they had. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, pretty More much. so than we expected, at least, it, or than yeah, we it, most expected. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. Um, there was another angle to it, though, which was that... Um, a lot of the filmmakers thought, now we're going to have more access to mainland China. We're going to be able to sell a lot more product. We're, our film industry will continue and we'll have a broader audience. Right. Um, that really didn't happen either, right. unfortunately. All of this was, was sort of in the air, circling around at this time. The fears of, you know, I think a lot of people knew that the film industry was pretty much on the brink of collapse. It was happening already. So... That combined with the whole colonial sort of allegory and fear that I just mentioned, along with Todd's point about, you know, more concretely, the fear of this outbreak. And Ebola is a scary thing. You know, we just saw it in the United States, how, you know, a couple of cases, isolated cases in hospitals almost, you know, made a lot of people, threw a lot of people into a panic. Absolutely. You think about how we responded in 2015 uh-huh. with much more knowledge. And, and right. there, there was still this big <laughs> boogeyman mysticism yeah. swarming around it. And, then, and obviously perpetuated to some degree by media reporting. But, right, but there, exactly. there was a natural boogeyman around it as well. So with all of those sort of currents combined, what you get in this film is a really apocalyptic sense very much it feels very impending doom i I agree completely the apocalyptic impending doom except that this brings me to a narrative point that i would like to discuss at some point that all of that comes in in the second half of the film and actually a little less than the second half of the film Mm -hmm. that the how do i say this the large framework of this very convoluted narrative mm-hmm. doesn't really start coming together and developing until slightly past the midpoint of the film. It tries to kind of tie everything in, speeds up pace-wise, and all the convoluted aspects of this narrative start coming together in less than the second half of the film, which they successfully do for yeah. the most part. However, it's pretty thin piecing together. Conceptually, it was great. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of those films that I kind of looked at and was kind of like, I would love to see this rewritten under a different context or, yeah. or like conceptually, like I was so intrigued. And then yet narratively, I thought it was pulled off pretty thinly at times. I would defend that pacing though, because I think it's like, this is how we deal with problems. Right. We wait until they become impossible to ignore. And I get that to where I, I leave open the door that the pacing issue, I think to me it was more that so much of the film 
was spent on him, his relationship with the couple that owned the Chinese restaurant in Johannesburg and his life there. And then the second half of the film tried to bring in five to six different elements that had just been touched on in the first half of the film. Right, right. Um, and so I, I think that's where a few narrative holes fell Could have in. been woven in a little better. Uh, exactly. And that's all I'm saying. So I don't think it was my issues with the pacing as much as absolutely weaving in those issues so that when they culminated at the end, yeah. I was a little more invested in that or I could even follow it a little better. Fair enough. Conceptually, I was very, very invested. The character of Kai, I was very, very invested in. But then there are these scenes, predominantly the sex scenes, um, mm-hmm. that honestly kind of jolt you out. They're, they're, they almost become a little vignette of their own, a little porn vignette thrown in the middle. All of it mm-hmm. is laced with violence and antagonism. Yeah, it is. All of yeah, it. Yeah. Um, it's all kind of the same. Whether he's raping a girl or whether you see a married couple having sex, it's kind of the same sex. Yeah, I mean, make and, no mistake. This, as much as I, as much as I talk sort of high-mindedly and ana- and analytically about themes in this film, it is vile. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it is. It is crass. It uh-huh. is hugely problematic. Yes. In many many ways, Thank racially. You. Um, sexually, uh, even scientifically, like Ebola does not work the way no, it's portrayed in this not movie. All. all of the themes in this movie basically come down to power and power dynamics. And one of the things that I think fits in very well is this idea of money. You know, Kai is at the very bottom of the totem pole when he is in Johannesburg. During that whole sequence where, uh, the boss and his wife are talking about what if he dies, like we're going to have to hide him and bury him in secret. Maybe we should just kill him now because it's implied that they know something about his past. They also say he doesn't have papers. He's right. Illegal. He's there illegally. So if they have a dead illegal immigrant on their hands, they're going to get in trouble. Right. So, you know, like they're exercising this modicum of power they have over Kai only because of the huge behemoth of institutional and colonial power that is hanging over them. Right. So these are people that are basically overlording Kai while the entire community around them is overlording them. Right. Right. Exactly. Other than their patrons. They have, however, a lot of money socked away. After after Kai murders the couple, he finds the money, and that's what he uses to go back to Hong Kong and live it up. Uh, so it's kind of rich for a day kind of thing. Right. You know, like he has lots of cash in his pocket and burns through it fast. And so the entire time, Women through the entire first half of the film, Kai is always... Like one of the things that he uses as evidence or the fact that everybody bullies him is that he doesn't make any money. Mm-hmm. He's always struggling for money. And he can't get laid. Now he's murdered the boss. So now he's the boss. He's taken the boss's money. He travels to Hong Kong on this guy's passport and he goes and he 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 gets a bunch of hookers slick clothes slick clothes nice he hires yeah yeah he gets the penthouse in the hotel room he hires a bunch of hookers and he's like like Todd said sort of rich for a day he's living it up um so we think you know Kai thinks as a good and this is another thing 
capitalism because <laughs> uh-huh. the People's Republic of China obviously ideologically not a capitalist state so it does it clearly does not buy him happiness because he's already infected with this disease which can represent pretty much anything that is a that is a a, a source of anxiety within the narrative he goes and tries to rekindle and reconnect with his old his old girlfriend all he does is throw money at her, you know, and yes. he's really trying to recapture everything. Everything he feels that's been taken away from him or denied feel- him. Exactly. He he gets in this position of what he thinks is power and tries to buy it all back. But really all he's doing is making everyone around him sick. Yeah, absolutely. And spreading this disease. It's like. And so yeah. he's spreading it without knowledge at first. <laughs> right. And then he becomes aware of it. Uh-huh. And during the chase where the cops are after him, everybody finds him out. Um, his woman finds out that he has the disease and wants nothing to do with him. Right. On and on. So everybody turns against him and, you know, kind of flexing the little bit of muscle that I have for the first time in my life. And then within a few days, he's just a rat on the streets again. Yeah. Um, and the only thing he has to defend himself with is this disease that he's carrying. Mm-hmm. And so he goes down the streets screaming, Ebola, you don't know what Ebola is? Because half the people don't know. Right. And he's spitting on them. And yeah. he's like, you know, throwing stuff or whatever. Basically, he cuts spitting. himself and he like flings yeah. his blood on people. Yeah. Too, right? So he's literally shooting people with this disease that he's carrying that he realizes he's not going to die from at this point. This is where the bullying was very potent to me. Um, thinking about... Um, the school shootings in America, thinking about the Virginia Tech incident, the man, you know, going out spitting Ebola on people very much felt the victim very much felt as if the world had kept him down in some way. And that part of it was really potent to me. Yeah. And you You know know what? Even the, um, the incident, the, the spree in California last year, Uh Elliot Roger, much like Kai, he felt as if women, he deserved to have women sleep with him just because he existed and was a man. Yes. Yeah, there's something very 21st century about this crazy entitlement. Yeah. It's extremely problematic, but at the same time, it fits the tone of the film and it serves its purpose within the film. I think, I mean, I assigned it to you. Mm-hmm. I think it's worthwhile, worth watching, really interesting thematically, and I think it it has some very interesting things to say. I think, um, yeah, I would almost... Um... I would, I would almost follow suit completely with what Cullen said. Um, this was one of the first ones, like, coming in today, I, I until the last minute, highbrow, lowbrow, I honestly did <laughs> yeah. not know. There were so many things that bothered me about it. And at the same time, with all that being said, I watched this very smoothly. Like, I didn't want to get up. I didn't need to take breathers necessarily. Um, I didn't lose interest. Um, I was very invested. By the end, I was extremely invested in the plight of Kai um, and its impact on the society around him. I very much cared about little Lily, um, who had grown into quite the young woman and, and whatever shred of purity that she represented in the film when there was very little relief in the film in those ways. Um, and then the idea that it was an exploitation film that was there for shock value at times alone. The sexual scenes were shocking. The um, Some of the biological scenes where doctors were playing with organs and doing a dissection were very shocking. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That, so there was, I like those parts a Absolutely, lot. me too. And there were visuals that were really good shock horror cinema that were integrated in pretty realistically. So the questions I always ask, you know, what was the intent of the filmmaker? Were they successful? Um, um, was I invested? You know, almost apologetically, my answer to most of those is yes. Um, 
And at the same time, do I want to tell people to watch this film? I tend to be leaning towards no um, for all of the problematic reasons we've discussed. Do I feel good about myself if I tell people to watch this film? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, do I think you'll get something out of it? Yeah, I kind of do. With all that being said, um, wow. (laughs) We're going to do something a little unusual here. We're going to go with a split brow. Ooh, one brow is up, one brow is down. Indeed. I'm going to have to make a new sound bite for this. <laughs> split brow! Split brow. This is <laughs> Ebola syndrome, split brow, put a pin in it. Ebola Chicana! All right. Um, so Todd has assigned me a, a selection of films by the American experimental auteur, Stan Brackage. I should preface this by saying that the longest of these films was 31 minutes. The shortest was 35 seconds. <laughs> All of them are without sound. So the first one that I watched but, uh, from 1959 was called Window Water Baby Moving. It is a documentary um, of the birth of Stan Brackage's child. Mm-hmm. Was it his first child? I don't know if it was his first child. I know it's the only one he recorded. Okay, yeah. He, he, he essentially shot his wife giving birth to their child. Um, and it starts with... A window, and then there's water, and then there's a baby, and it's all pretty moving. Mm-hmm. The next thing I watched <laughs> was Dog Star Man Part 1 from 1962, um, which involves a man climbing a mountain. Very well. <laughs> <laughs> you got to remember, this is the part where Colin gives a narrative synopsis. Yeah, so yeah. this is actually very appropriate. <laughs> so after Dogstar Man 1, I watched a VHS that is called Hand Painted Films by Stan Brackage. It is in total uh, about 30 minutes long, and I watched the whole thing. Um, and it includes the films Night Music from 1986, Autumnal. A Study in Color in Black and White, Three Homerics, Ephemeral Solidity, The Harrowing, Trist Haunt, and Stellar, all from 1993, and Black Ice, The Charter Series, and Knots, which are all from 1994. These films range from 30 seconds to 6 minutes in length. Um, well, and actually nine minutes in length. The Charter series is nine minutes. Uh, and then, then I watched uh, Dog Star Man, the prelude from 1961. So I watched those out of order. I broke my rule to never watch a sequel before I've watched the original. Uh, but in That's this case, okay. that didn't matter. And then finally, I watched The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes from 1971, which I believe, Todd, you have not seen. I have not. So I quite a few of the painted ones that I may or may not have seen. I yeah. don't remember the titles. So we'll not talk too much about the last one, The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes. 
Um, but okay, this is your part time. Yeah, this is okay. where you talk. Um, so Stan Brackage. For those that have not heard of him, anybody into avant-garde film, experimental film, obviously is nodding their heads right now, being like, yeah, of course, dumb, dumb, I've heard of Stan Brakhage. But the rest of the world, for the most part, has not. Um, so amongst those that have gone to film school or really into avant-garde um, or into experimental art, um, Stan Brakhage is, is a household name, but only to those people. Um, and so still very broadly not known to the mainstream, even festival goers, even, you know, real cinephiles that just have not dipped that far into avant-garde. But Stan Brakhage is well considered at least the godfather, the father, the whatever of American experimental cinema. Um, and perhaps the father of modern experimental cinema, period. Um, Jonah Mikas would say he was one of the greatest of all times. Um, any other working experimental filmmaker would basically um, give full hats off and nod to this man. Um, and then um, I want to bring up a couple of actual um, pop culture references to, to give you guys um, a little bit of a, a context of, of where he lied. He, he taught at the University of Colorado for years and years and years and years and years. There were a couple of well-known pop culture, um, do we call them filmmakers? They're artists, they're media masters, um, who have, have gone on to have a quite, um, quite notorious career, actually, um, up to this time, that were not either one film majors, however, both took tons of film classes with their electives. Um, Matt Stone and Trey Parker are their names. Um, you may know them from a little cartoon called South Park. Is that what it is? I think. Um, have gone on to have quite a bit of success on Broadway, um, I hear, as of late. Um, but anyway, yes. So the creators of South Park did study Understand Brackage. And Cannibal the Musical. And Cannibal the Musical. Lest act, we forget. And Cannibal the Musical, which has a guest part by Stan Brackage <gasps> in it, by the way. And I'm not sure where in there, but there is his voice or his presence somewhere in there. Really? Yes. Wow. And so they so worship had, this man. I had seen a Stan Brackage film. Yes. I had no idea. Technically. <laughs> and even funnier, Stan in the cartoon is named after Stan oh, Brackage. Oh, wow. Yes. And so there's you know some what? of those cool crossovers. I learned something today. <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm a huge fan, so yeah, I like the connect. I find it to be very, very, very clever. I think they're some of our great satirists of modern times. But um, another um, another little pop reference would be that um, if you were to walk into Martin Scorsese's office to this day, there are very few relics of the cinema world um, on his wall. A couple of them are original painted clear leaders from Stan Brackage or scratched film. I can't remember which one. If you look in Raging Bull on the scenes where Scorsese wants it to look like old home footage, that he went into the editing booth and over his editor grabbed the reel and said, this doesn't look vintage enough. This doesn't look real enough. Picked up a metal object and started scratching the film. The editor starts freaking out and said, what the hell are you doing? Get out of my <laughs> editing room, you silly young director. And he's like, no, this is what Stan Brackage did. This is how he did it. And he just picked up a nail and started doing this. And so that's what Scorsese did. And that's why those shots in the all of the home footage from um, Raging Bull look the way they do. Um, is that Scorsese by hand picked up a nail or a piece of metal of some sort so the myth goes and scratched his own film and freaked out the editor and it looks great 
All right, so that gives you a little bit there um, as far as his pop culture. And then what I'm going to do, actually, and this is going to be the end of my little summary, is I wrote a tiny little piece back in film school in response to a moving picture giving and taking book, which was simply a, I don't know, 15, 20-page essay by Stan Brackage about his process. And it was literally a piece that he wrote to the aspiring filmmaker. And, um, and so I think you know, I, I'm just going to read a bit of this and please forgive me. This was quite a few years ago. So forgive my writing and done uh, the night before, of course, um, Brackage in his filmmaking and writing never fails to reveal an endearing nature and somehow rests between primal childlike perceptions and sophisticated comprehension of formal artistic technique. It seems in many regards that Brackage has managed to deconstruct the concept of motion imagery and then rediscover or reinvent it with un unabated curiosity. He shows infinite generosity in his desire to share personal discoveries, technical and conceptual, while also expressing a constant desire and respect for new discoveries that may extend beyond his humble realization. I was particularly humored by his humble invitation to quit reading the material and get to work, repeated at regular intervals throughout the essay. So this is what I was trying to get to. So I'm reading this essay by this grand master of filmmaking, and all the way through it, after every paragraph for pages, he says, now quit listening to me and go get to work. Now quit listening to me and go make a film. Now go get some film stock and start scratching. Now go get some clear leader and start painting. Now go pick up an old camera and start shooting something. Don't worry about it. Go get to work. Go do something. Go do something. And all the way through it, he keeps reminding you, quit listening to me. What the hell do I know? Now go figure it out for yourself. This, I think, gets really down to the key brilliance and beauty of what he is. Um, I've often often said that the only thing that separates kind of that in obviously loose terms, but that standard of what is good cinema or good art of any form versus those things that we really are kind of like, wow, that's brilliant or that's genius. You know, the, these, these special terms that we use to, to separate off these ones that have really discovered something unique to us or something that we don't feel like we could have done for ourselves. Um, and I think it always comes down to who's more honest, who is just utterly honest with themselves, with the world, with their perceptions. And I think Stan Brackage's main objective was ultimate honesty about his perceptions. Um, he often would say that he was attempting to rediscover the perceptions of a child, um, that that was his whole mission in his career. Um, I, I would dare say that, that he came really close quite a few times. Um, and then once again, back to, um, to the essay, which I would highly encourage any filmmaker to read. Um, the essay that I was um, citing earlier um, of him reminding you, now go discover for yourself. Go invent for yourself. Um, his filmography is enormous. Um, some of it can be challenging. You might want to take it in bits and pieces. It definitely challenges every basic perception that we have on narrative filmmaking because there is no narrative it is purely experimental avant-garde filmmaking um please know that going in he's not making any attempts at narrative there is no story to be told it's perception and it's imagery window water baby moving is a great place to start it was the first one that i watched and it's also chronologically the first one um that that uh the, the earliest film that uh of the selection that todd gave me um so I will talk about my experience watching this. It's only 12 minutes long. It is the closest of anything that Todd gave me to watch, the closest to narrative. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So it is silent. Uh, and it was a little bit strange to watch because I'm not used to watching 
films that are completely silent. It's very eerie. Even when I watch a silent film, there's music. Um, So I didn't quite know what to make of it at first. I was a little bit alienated by that. Um, I get my guess would be that Brackage, um, his intent was the world around you becomes the soundtrack. At first, it's silent, but then you start to fill in the gaps with a fly buzzing next to your ear or whatever is around you, the hum of the of the air conditioner, the, you know, the ceiling fan, whatever happens to be around you, you start to notice. Because you're given nothing to contend with, you start to notice that. And the it didn't really... It didn't bother me with Window Water Baby moving because it was so short, uh, comparatively short. But when I got to watching Dog Star Man, I was tempted to put on some music. Yeah. I re- I wanted to just, you know, put something on so I would have something to engage my ears, but I st- I stuck it out and was, you know, I tried to be true to what what the filmmaker intended and I didn't put on any music. It'd be but. so interesting to see how the perceptions and the experience would vary depending on what sound you were to score it with. Yeah, and I think I think, you know, it's obviously very deliberate of Brackage not to do that because because music you know, like one of the reasons we have music in films is because it's a really easy way to tell you how to feel. Yeah. Isn't it so interesting that we could actually carry this into a, if we wanted to, a huge discussion on sound in film yeah. off of a filmmaker that never used sound? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, what is it there for? It's uh-huh. a big part of it is, you know, it instructs you, and especially somebody who's weaned on Hollywood style filmmaking, when there's no music, there's like, I don't know how to feel about it. And you this. notice if a narrative filmmaker really wants to make you uncomfortable, <laughs> knock out the music. Right, right. Freaking No Country for Old Man again. Yeah, okay, yeah, you silence. know, but, but numerous, numerous examples yeah. of that, that um, if, if you knock out those music cues, all of a sudden things get real, real. Yeah, yeah. You know? So I'm watching Window Water Baby moving, um, and I'm just sort of taking it in. It is a film that resists intellectualizing and I really like to intellectualize my film watching as anyone who's listened to more than five minutes of this podcast uh, knows and this all of the brackage stuff is really hard to do that with because you're forced to pretty much turn off your brain and just engage with it on the level of imagery I think that's Um, a beautiful assessment we have a lot of close-ups um, a lot of cuts, a lot of montage, which obviously is something that Brackage likes to do. And comparatively speaking to the other stuff I watched, these you know, the shots in this are pretty long. But it's also quite chaotic because you will cut from the window to the water to the woman, back to the window, back to the water. And it's 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 all it's very obviously you know Eisensteinian montage. You're trying to give an overall impression through different images um, juxtaposed with each other. Um, and it's funny because as I watched this film, I did not feel particularly moved. I was interested. Right. And I was sort of intellectualizing for a while, but, but but by the end of it, or somewhat like a couple minutes before the end, I became aware of the fact that my hands were clenched, <laughs> 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 that and that my whole body was very tense, and that I I had been sort of in this tension 
not even realizing it. And it is quite beautiful what is portrayed. I <laughs> I don't know how to say this and weave it into, uh, you know, a general discussion of the film. So I'm just going to put it out there. The woman who was delivering this baby had no pubic hair. <laughs> the pubis was was completely shaved. And... I noticed this and started thinking about, did Brackage do that because he knew he was going to shoot this and so he wanted it more visible? He wanted to be able to see as much as possible because in 1959, I don't think it was... I don't think that would have been standard. It was fashionable for women to... It's so interesting. I, I never areas. even questioned that and probably due to current you know, relativity right. um, of what norms are. Um, but um, so interesting. I, I don't know. Or, or if that was typical medical practice back then. Maybe so. I, I, I mean, I don't know anything about personal grooming standards of the 1950s. I don't either. I can only um, make assumptions. I know about the 70s. But, <laughs> Sorry. But, but it seemed that was something that kind of took me out of the film. Because, I mean, first of all, you see, you know, you know what's happening. You know what's about to happen pretty early on into the film. Um, and then the first time you see a close-up of the vagina, you're a bit taken aback. Because... At least I am not used to seeing close-ups of genitals outside of of porn. Then when I noticed that she was was shaved, it sort of took me out of it because I felt like this was all extremely naturalistic and extremely, you know, verite and just really a portrayal of exactly what is. But then I my mind started going and thinking, like, was this done? Was this hair, you know, removed so that you could see everything much better? And it started feeling kind of artificial and weird. Interesting. And it kind of took me out of the moment. Um but uh you know that didn't last too long it's just a question that i had in in my mind but i i did get back to it and uh yeah i mean it is what it is it you see in close up the delivery of this baby and then you see the you see the cord is cut the placenta is taken out um and the couple embrace they hold you know and now the trio i guess no longer a couple the trio all embrace and it's it's very it's very loving and very beautiful um it's for me like even um like i love the challenge of of the physicality being shocking or disturbing to me and being poetic to me at the same time and mm-hmm. and only being able to assess that or account for that from my lack of experience or or I'm not sure exactly but um cuz you know this is obviously a, a very natural biological thing that people have gone through mm-hmm. but what I also thought was interesting was we keep talking about the virte of it but you know if he were going for pure virte he would just would have shot it straight the whole damn thing right. you know right. that this was very no much a a piece of Massive decision making. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And even back to um, the possible artifice or possible biology of her being shaven, mm-hmm. um, or, or practicality of her being shaven. Um, that, that once again, he made numerous decisions throughout this film. Um, right. Back from forth from the window to the water, extremely poetic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and there was definitely even some symbolism there. I would dare say. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, because he was trying to capture the his experience. You know, I don't think he was trying to capture her experience as much as his experience. Right. You right. know, and um, of a father in the room 
having this. And, yeah, he um, couldn't. I mean, if you're if you're looking directly at the delivery of the baby in close up, that's not a view that the mother is privy to. Right. Absolutely. You feel very much like you're looking through his eyes. I felt very much like I was looking through his eyes yeah. throughout the film. Yeah. This I do know was with Brackage's first wife or mm-hmm. an earlier wife that he did not stay married to, and as it is. Depicted, Brackett is supposedly an amazingly nice, humble, charming man from every depiction I've heard. Um, but um, that the marriage did not last, and particularly due to the fact that he shot everything in their lives, that their lives became a walking Vierte documentary, mm-hmm. and that it supposedly created great tension in their relationship, and that he almost obsessively could not stop. Um, in his next marriage, he shot nothing of their personal life. And supposedly as it plays was that he, to some degree came to terms with where his art and where his life had to remain, um, a little bit of peace and separation from one another. The importance of boundaries, kids. Yeah. It's starts to get a little creepy. Uh And then when I start thinking that maybe he shaved her pubic area so that it, it would be more visible, that starts to get creepy too. But I mean, I, I do take more of a formalist approach, you know, to film and it's what's there on the screen and what's there on the screen is quite captivating. Right. And and to me, it's, it's interesting. Like I totally valid as far as, yeah, bringing in like the creepy element of, of not being able to separate your art and your experience. Um, and I totally get that. And at the same time to me, I, I kind of, can relate and empathize as well of understanding that there's that blurry line of, of what part of your personal life is your personal life. Right. Um, but when others are involved, um, I can only think that that had to be really challenging. Um, yeah. And that I think his intent was probably really beautiful that possibly in later life reflected upon and said, Hey, my camera was there for that moment. Was I there for that moment? You know, right. perhaps yeah. um, because you got to think during the birth of his child, he was had his eye in a camera. Yeah. And he's shooting it like, like an artist, not like a, f- a father. And how did that make his partner feel at that moment? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, we, yeah, when you start to peel back the layers, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things to wonder about. Very much so. Very much so. I don't think it takes away from any of the artistry. It is a very beautiful piece. I can't take that away from it. A captivating in a strange way. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't force itself on you. It doesn't scream out how artistic it is and how avant-garde it is. He's a strange avant-garde. It's not this contrived avant-garde that we so think of so often of people trying to be avant-garde, that Andy Warhol avant-garde of how much effort can I put into being on the outskirts. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a very naturalist, this is the film that I make. Well, let's move on to Dog Star Man Part 1. Okay. Because while I wouldn't call it pretentious i think it is much more overt in how avant-garde it is it's it's more abstract this is where some themes really start to emerge um nature being a huge one um sexuality being a huge one um the juxtaposition of images um there are some interesting moments in this film. There are a couple shots I want to talk about particularly, but but basically, I mean, this film is difficult to describe uh, because it is is so abstract. There's a dog, and there's a star, and there's a man. <laughs> Just as in window water baby moving, there's a window and water and a baby. There's there's a dog, and there are repeated shots of the sun 
there are um, there's a solar photography of uh, solar flares, and there's a man who is climbing a mountain and having a very very difficult time of climbing this mountain. Lots of shots of trees, and then there's a woman. There is a sexual interlude that happens, and we cut back to the man climbing the mountain again. Um, so the sun, the climbing of the mountain, and it's all very abstractly cut together. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of um, imagery of nature being shot in this extremely chaotic way that reminds you of the hand-painted films, streaks of color and light and shadow that sort of sort of go by and there's this there's this sense of the man is Sisyphus that he's struggling to get up this mountain having a very hard time and he he reaches a certain point and then he falls and tumbles back down and then you get this chaotic swirl like I said of light and shadow from the very first frame of the film the man clearly has no chance yeah, yeah. <laughs> against nature yeah. every single image is natural and then right smack dab in the middle of it for one one second there's a shot of these columns. Yeah. These, like, Greek columns are almost like the sort you see on, like, um, federal buildings, you know, in D.C. They show up for, like, two seconds, and then you never see them again. They're gone. Right. And it's this really jarring, out of nowhere, it's nature, 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 boom, here's something man-made. And it's not just something man-made. It is stone. It is yeah. something extremely natural. It's like what the we opposite. The, uh, yeah, yeah. What we associate as being completely like it's what the earth is composed of. Yeah. Stone, but it's been worked on and crafted by human hands into something extremely unnatural, you know. Um, and, and keep in mind, we're watching film, you know, which is made of. Of, of plastic yeah, and you know human manipulation of light so it's almost like him acknowledging like I know even though I'm trying to capture this this extremely natural primal sensory explosion I know at the same time how artificial it all is I still know I'm carving columns right exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah well said so this film my experience watching this film I had a hard time with it um, I really did because it wasn't it wasn't twelve minutes of a fairly straightforward beginning, middle, and end narrative without sound. It was about thirty minutes of chaotic, abstract imagery with no sound, and this is when I really wanted to turn the music on. Uh-huh. It felt like meditating, the mind wandering again and again and again. Every few seconds, the mind wanders, and you have to keep bringing it back and keep keep saying, I'm here now. I'm here in the experience of watching this film. Um, While still being mindful of those sounds, not necessarily saying go away. Right, right. However. Yeah. yeah. Right, because it's important what it evokes in you. So there is um, a shot in this film that I believe... That Gaspar Noe completely lifted. <laughs> I want to hear this. For Enter the Void. And I do not know how this shot was achieved in 1962, if indeed it is what I think it is depicting. What it appears to be depicting is the act of sexual intercourse shot from inside a vagina. 
Yes. With the penis coming towards the camera. Yes. And then a few cuts later, there's the penis ejaculating into the camera, but not in... Just ejaculating straight at the camera. Obviously, Noe does this with CGI. Right. But how did Brackish do it? (laughs) And is it what I think it is? Which? It's also it's also jumbled and and, and chaotic and God, all these extreme, go back and extreme close ups. So I don't know. I have no idea how Brackage achieved that. I mean, you'd have to assume naturalistic in some way. But how do you light that shot? I don't know. <laughs> and I would not put it past no way to. I mean, that's where it comes from. Oh, one hundred percent. Oh, one hundred percent. Comes 100%. from. <laughs> well, let's move on right now yeah. into the painted stuff. So. Um, I watched the entire the entire VHS, which is about thirty minutes, um, of hand painted films. Which is like Todd was saying earlier, clear leader. Mm-hmm. That's right. Which is un which is basically film with no emulsion on it. That's right? exactly. It's what just it is. clear. It's literally just clear the plastic. plastic backing, right? With none of the emulsion chemical stuff on top of it. Um, and he would take this blank film and literally paint on it. And literally, yes. According to the back of the video, it says that he was originally interested in abstract expressionist painting. Um, so I guess he wanted to be a painter before he became a filmmaker or yeah. wanted to be a filmmaker before he became a painter, <laughs> however you want to look at it. Um, because this was the latter part of his career was pretty much just taken up exclusively with doing this stuff. Very right? much so. At first I had no idea what to make of it because it's just a riot of color. Yeah. It's just drips and drabs of painting and dabs and, it it there's there's very very seldom any consistency to it it's not animation where each frame is a slightly altered version of the frame before so right. there's smooth motion happening it is just chaos essentially what it comes off as initially to the viewer is just chaos when you're painting clear leader I think, as everybody knows, there's a reason we call it 16-millimeter film or 35-millimeter film. We're talking millimeters here, guys. Yeah. Um, so one frame is tiny, itsy-bitsy tiny. Can you imagine painting on a 16-millimeter canvas? Right. You know? um, and, and then frame for frame, the reminder, as most of you know, 24 frames per second create a second of film. So 24 individual still photography or still photographs equal one second of film. He had to do 24 painted 16 millimeter i think he always worked on 16 it might have been some 35 but almost always 16 but 24 individually painted marked or manipulated frames create one second one second of visual and then he did this what was the longest one you watched a few minutes no nine minutes nine minutes was the longest one 540 seconds each second with 24 frames in it yeah, so you can thousands and thousands and thousands of individually painted or drawn or manipulated images to make that nine-minute film. Um, now, with that being said, feeding from one frame to the other, and as it rolls through the projector, with animation, yes, each sequence is slightly altered from the sequence before it to create the illusion of animation, motion, whatever. With his, sometimes it seems like he's very, to me, it sometimes seems like he's very aware of how that's going to play in the projection. Mm-hmm. There's other times it seems like he's a still 
um, painter that is saying, let's see what happens when it hits the projector. Right. (laughs) You know? Yeah. That's interesting to me. Like where, how much of it's intentional and how much of it is, let's see what happens. Yeah. And there's something really interesting that happens because if I had just watched the first film and then switched it off, I would have said, oh, that's interesting. Uh It's kind of beautiful. I don't know what to make of it. It's kind of cool. But Watching the entire 30 minutes, watching these films progress in chronological order, seeing him get better at this technique, and you start to see how many different things he was capable of doing with this. In most of the films, there is a predominant color or set of colors, and then periodically splashes of different colors will occur, contrasting colors, complementary colors. And there's so many different techniques that he had. Sometimes, like you said, he does seem aware of what's going to happen, and there is more of smooth motion, almost like a pulsating um, effect that's created. Sometimes it's completely random and appears to be static. But I was watching it at one point, at one point, I had this very clear realization. I was looking at this film and what appeared to it, like, it. I thought if somebody walked in on me watching this, they would just think I was watching Static. <laughs> <laughs> they would think I would have gone nuts and was watching actual snow on a dead television channel. Call the hospital time to put Colin up again. But then what I realized is Static is white noise it's completely it's the visual a visual manifestation of total randomness oh. this is the opposite of that every single frame is deliberate and he knew exactly what he wanted to put on that frame every single time he painted one, like Todd said, of the thousands and thousands that he painted. It is where chaos and intent meet, <laughs> yeah. you know? By the end of this 30 minutes, I was, like, all about it. <laughs> and that final film kind of blew my mind. Because nice. I think that's the one where... <laughs> and it's so, like... I, I, This is where it's going to start sounding like I'm kind of on drugs a little bit. (laughs) Because there's really no way to describe this with words. But there are are several distinct stages in this. And there are cuts in between where it's either black or a solid color. And for each stage, the first one, there uh, is a distinct pattern that keeps reoccurring and you feel as if you're being you feel as if you're zooming out and then cut and then the next one different pattern complementary but you get the sense that you're zooming in and then cut the next one you feel like you're very rapidly panning left. The next one, you feel like you're very rapidly panning right. The next one is completely different. It scratches. It's not paint anymore. It's like scratches, and you feel like you're going up. Yes. <laughs> By the end of this uh, VHS, I was completely captivated. Um, and I... Uh, Honestly, the hand-painted stuff was probably my favorite awesome. out of all the Brackage stuff I watched. Um, I'm, I'm, I was kind of in the same boat as you, that, that the earlier stuff was so intriguing to me 
and more important to me once I got to the hand-painted stuff. Right, Like, more significant once I got into his later work. So I continued on, and I watched uh, (laughs) the Dog Star Man Prelude from 1961, which is almost like an early stab at doing this the completely abstract hand painted stuff except a lot of it is with actual live action film there's a lot of that super fast motion a lot of that sort of whirling and spinning stuff a lot of that um and there is some hand paint like there are some hand painted frames in but they're sprinkled in and they're not too many it's like when he's figuring out that hey i can manipulate my stock yeah exactly it hasn't quite caught on that hey i can just create my stock yeah yeah (laughs) and it's sort of i don't know like dog star man the prelude didn't really do it for me for whatever reason. And oddly, think... it's a little better known than part one. Oh, yeah? Like, when I was looking him back up, yeah. like, it was the one that, or it seemed to be brought up more. It's a lot less me. representational than part one. It's a lot more abstract. But it's sort of, it doesn't really feel like it goes anywhere. Not to say yeah. that any of these films go anywhere, <laughs> except for maybe Window Water Baby moving, but... I don't know. I just didn't, for whatever reason, and I think probably a lot of it is down to where I was at when I was watching it. Right. Didn't really work for me. Right. Um, But once again, one of the beautiful things about his works is how much room there is for your own context. Yeah, yeah. Now, the final thing, and we have a bonus, a bonus film that I'm going to talk about just a little bit that Todd hasn't seen, which is The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes from 1971. Um, this is a film that I had been made aware of, um, because it has a little bit of notoriety in, surprisingly enough, my world, um, because what this film is, is autopsies. Somebody let Stan Brackage into the county medical examiner's office or something, and he spent a day in there, I'm guessing, filming autopsies. Huh. And it's shot in a very similar way to Window Water Baby Moving. Um, And it catches you off guard at first because at first all you're seeing is their weighing the bodies, measuring the bodies, looking at the outside um, of these of these corpses. And then about halfway through, it's a 30-minute film, about maybe not halfway through, maybe about 10 minutes into it, they start cutting. And when, you, when they start cutting, you're like, whoa. <laughs> like, they're really going to do this. And this has a build. It really does, because it starts very innocuous, and it ends, like, by the time it ends, you've basically seen the human body in every every way possible inside and out you've seen males females old young you know black white all different sorts of people being cut open and you know surprise surprise they all look the same on the inside i'm really intrigued by what the tone and the feel of bracket shooting something like this would be because it's like i've never seen him approach a morbid matter like this uh-huh. or a death oriented matter. Yeah. Um, um, and I'm wondering, is there still that tone of poetry? Like how did he absorb it? How did he digest it and put it out? You watch them scoop the brain out and then you're like, you know, there's an empty brain pan 
and then you watch the Y incision being cut in the chest. They take the scissors and they snip the ribs and they take off the breastplate and they scoop out all of the organs and he never shows the faces. Interesting. That's one interesting thing. You never show the face. So you have a body with a, a head from which all of the skin has been peeled back. Um, you have, and the brain, you know, half the skull's been taken off, brain's been scooped out. You have a torso which is completely open, ribs spread, all the all the organs scooped out, and it's like it really, really gives you the impression. And I do think it's actually kind of beautiful. You, re- you see, the result is just a shell. Yeah, it's almost like like. Uh, a a cicada you know the cicadas when they shed their skin and they leave behind just the The child I collected those things yeah Yeah. that's exactly what it looks like and there's the place in the you know there's that part in the back where it burst open and the and the new bug came out that's like what the open ribs look like to me and it's just like you're left with this beautiful notion that these people are are gone now and they have no more use for this vessel yeah. And um once again that sounds like exactly a Stan Brackage approach. Yeah. And huh. it's really I mean it's difficult to watch. Yeah. But he films it. I would say it it's done very much in the same style as window water baby moving, just very not necessarily trying to be not, shocking yeah. or just simply saying this matter is what it is and yeah. I'm shooting it. Extremely matter of fact. And, and it's see, not that's amazing to me is like his ability to separate himself from that to some degree too. Yeah. yeah. And it's not nearly as chaotic, um even though window water is not as chaotic as the other ones it still has a lot of cutting in it this because death is not as chaotic as right. life yeah exactly uh, <laughs> yes. very well said yeah this is very i mean of all the brackish films i watch this is the most serene and slow paced huh. in terms of the way it's cut very interesting um <laughs> cut <laughs> uh i recommend it not by no means is it for the faint of heart but i recommend that a lot um so and the final results are I mean I, I I don't know obviously the brackage oeuvre that I've seen taken as a whole I obviously you know give a high brow to yeah um of the individual films uh I didn't quite know what to make of the dog star men, (laughs) especially the prelude. I might give a low brow to the prelude just because it was boring. Yeah. (laughs) It kind of kept me at an arm's length. I didn't really know what I was, what I was being shown. That's even after I, you know, had sort of, I'd watched the painted films and I watched dog star man one. I kind of knew what I was getting into the painted films and the act of seeing with one's own eyes. I give the highest brows to, um, window water baby moving is uh, quite spectacular, but again, still didn't quite know what to make of it and had those questions about you know, boundaries, the personal, right. the artistic, all of those sort of, I don't want to call them ethical, but I think that's fair to some degree, you know, sort of extra filmic yeah. concern, but as a whole, um, High high brows to the whole uh, enterprise. Yay, brackage. I, I like I like me some brackage. Yeah. In a moment, something about next week. 
so I have a film for um for Colin. Um, so I am going to give him Ratcatcher, oh. a 1999 film by Lynn Ramsey. The film is in English. No subtitles. Uh-huh. Um, just some deep, um, some rich, deep accents. I might have to watch it with the subtitles. You actually might because it's very blue collar. Uh-huh. Yeah. Deep Scottish type stuff. Um, but um, this film um, I watched while I was in film school. It was one of my favorite films of quite a few years, to tell you the truth. It really blew my mind and, and touched on some things that I personally um, would, would love and hope to achieve as a filmmaker if I ever get the opportunity. Yeah. So I... Um have heard the outcry. <laughs> I've heard the clamor that Todd needs to be introduced to the world of trauma. But I'm not going to start in what might be the logical place because I've given him too much shit from the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to go uh, Toxic Avenger, which would probably be the first one that would come to mind. Um, I'm going to assign Todd what I believe to be the latter-day trauma masterpiece. Maybe the last trauma masterpiece. Uh, Poultry Geist, Night of the Chicken Dead, from 2006, directed by the great Lloyd Kaufman. Next time, you have Ratcatcher and Poultry Geist to look forward to. Both... um, I guess we'll call this the animal episode. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Until then. I'm Todd. <laughs> Superman. <laughs> also, Todd wants you to keep it artsy. Keep it artsy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Cullen, and uh, yeah, I'm keeping it crass. Indeed. Okay, good people. As always, we would love to hear from you. Uh, the email is artscrasspodcast at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on our Facebook page. There is another podcast called Arts and Crass. We are not affiliated with them. They do comedy. We talk about movies. Uh, they had the name first. We did not copy them. We came up with the name on our own, and we liked it too much not to use it. Sorry.